All right, guys, welcome back to Revive School. Here we are, Esther 3 and 4, Lesson 134. Man, this is really crazy to me because I, I love Mindy's painting here. I mean, think about this, all these things that we just talked about, you know, uh, in, in chapter 1, Queen Vashti, right, who is King Xerxes, King Ahazari's wife. She decides, I don't want to obey my, my husband, the king. So then everybody's like, hey, you can't do that. It sets a precedent for all of the, the whole country. So what do they do? They get rid of her, and then they have this... This calling forth of women, uh, you know, some would call it a beauty pageant, but sometimes it's not necessarily the best environment. But they get to train, they get they get to be beautified, I guess. And many incorporates all of these different components in here. And and what do you know? Uh, Esther gets chosen. Esther gets chosen to be the queen. And so here you have obviously so many different layers of things that it would represent. But I even like the fact that she was given the best food as she was being chosen. A lot of layers here. So in this process of Queen Esther, which her Hebrew name would have been Hadassah, Queen Esther was now walking alongside King Ahasuerus. So as all of this takes place, you got to go to Esther 3. So here's what happens, okay? In verse 1, even though we're going to teach on Esther 4, but you got to give a backdrop. So we're going to do a little bit more of two chapters, whoa, than we normally do. But I think there's so much in this story It says in Esther 3, verse 1, after all this took place, right? After everything, uh, Queen Esther is in place. And remember, I I forgot to mention this, Mordecai sitting out the king's gate because now he's been placed in a position, probably of authority. He overhears two eunuchs that are going to try to kill the king. So now the records are written in the book that Mordecai saves the king's life. So after all that took place, King Hazaris uh, honored Haman, new guy in the picture, Son of Hamathatha, the Agagite. Now, we talked about this in our introduction yesterday. Kevin, when you hear Agagite, you go to Amalekites, and what's that mean? Uh, they were supposed to, they were going to be at war for generation yeah, to generation. Generation to generation, right? It's going to be an ongoing fight. And yet it says the king of Ahasuerus, which the reality is, remember, this is not an Israeli king, okay? This is a Persian king, right? says he promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. Scripture continues on in verse 2. The entire royal staff of the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done. But so just so you know, but Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. So interesting, it says the entire royal staff bowed down except Mordecai, who had a position that was given a position. I'm not bowing down to Haman. Well, in verse 3 of Esther 3, 3, the members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? Why do you refuse to bow down to a guy that the king put into position? And then in verse 4, here's what the scripture says. When they had warned him day after day and he still would not listen, they told Haman, hey, look, Mordecai's action, can you tolerate this? Since he had told them he was a Jew, there's no way Mordecai the Jew was going to bow down to a royal official named Haman, the Agagite, because Jews and Agagites and Malachites are always going to be going at each other's heads, each other's throats. They don't like each other. 
And so this is where it begins to come into play, our phrase that we have for all of the book of Esther. Now, I know the phrase, despised one. Okay, I get this. I know that doesn't fit this beautiful painting of Mindy's, and this is portraying Esther. But you got to remember, there's two players in this whole painting. There's Esther and there's Mordecai. The cousins are in place. God's using them to have a radical impact. So now in verse 5, after all this has been done, done in Esther 3, when Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, what happens? He was filled with rage. And so Haman comes up with a plan in verse 6. And this is where the story really takes off. When he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, he was racist, right? He doesn't like a Jew. Haman decided not to do away with Mordecai alone. No, that would be maybe in his mind too easy. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. In fact, I'm going to just wipe them out completely. We're going to get into that more this week, but it just seems to be a pattern. In fact, Tom, when you and I were at the UPS store and we're beginning to introduce the story of Esther to Sean and Elizabeth, we brought this up. Like, have you ever noticed that there's a pattern of countries and leaders constantly trying to wipe out uh, the Jewish people? And it was interesting. Sean, who's never even heard the story, goes, yeah, you're right. It does seem to be a theme in the world and the culture today. He had planned to destroy all of the Jews, not just Mordecai. Haman comes to the king, and here's what he says. He says, hey, king, uh, there's one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, yet living in isolation. Their laws are different from everybody else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. In fact, it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Notice he doesn't say who. At this time, just as there's a people group. If the king approves, let an order to be drawn up authorizing their destruction. And I'll pay 375 tons of silver to the accountants for deposit in the royal treasury. What does that have to do with anything? He's being sneaky. He's bribing. He's paying them off. Let's do this. In verse 10, well, 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 okay. (laughs) How many, how many times? Yes. This is what happens all the time, you guys. The king removed his signet ring from his finger, kind of a cool picture here, uh, and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jewish people. Verse 11. Then the king told Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with you as you see fit. Like, let's do this. This is is what you need. This is what I need. Hey, this is all going to work out great. Verse 12. Then it says this. The royal scribes were summoned. And then look what happens, okay? And the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, written for each province in its own script and to each ethnic group in its own language, 127 provinces. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the royal signet ring. In other words, letters were going to be delivered, okay, in verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling everybody, look at this, to destroy kill and annihilate, annihilate annihilate, all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on one day that's coming, a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. All because Mordecai the Jew at the king's gate, relative to Queen Esther, refused to bow down to Haman, his enemy. And now what you have is 15 million Jews that are scattered throughout the entire Persian Empire, if you'll go there. From Judah, it's, uh, from India, it says, to Ethiopia. In fact, Kevin, if you can go back now to Esther 1.1, I 
I mean, this is the region that you're talking about. So 15 million Jews, they, they estimate at that time, 127 provinces. This is what you have. It just says that the, the letters are being spread. And then these events are going to take place during the days of the king who ruled 127 provinces from India to Kush. Kush, many people would say. So from India to many people would say to Ethiopia. So this is what's taking place. Now, Kevin, if we can go back to Esther 3, where we were at. This is the letter that's being sent out. This is what's being delivered. So imagine getting a letter that just all of a sudden says, hey, by on this day, the 13th day of Adar, I'm supposed to be killed? Like, where did, where did this come from? Like, that has to be the mentality. And then in verses 14 and 15, a copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the people so that they might get ready for that day. Verse 15, the couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. So you know what this means? Once it was delivered, he sat down to eat. He sat down to eat, and the people were perplexed, and Mordecai had to let Esther know. So here's what you have. That's what you have. Mordecai, as we can go into what Wearsby even says, in verses 1 through 3, Mordecai expressed concern. It says, When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city and cried loudly and bitterly. He only went as far as the king's gate since the law prohibited anybody wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. And there was a great mourning among the Jewish people in every province. Where the king's command and edict came, they fasted, they wept, and they lamented. And many lay on sackcloth and ashes. I like this quote because I like Mordecai. It's a guy named Edmund, Edmund Burke, B-U-R-K-E. And he says this, All that is required for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And what you see with Mordecai is, is he begins to, to do something. You cannot be neutral when evilness prevails. It says that he put on sackcloth, went into the middle of the city, and he cried. And then in this process, everybody fasted, wept, and lamented. And many put on sackcloth and ashes as well. And so in verse 3, you see a corporate fast. I want to walk through this word fast because obviously both... Um, uh, both Mordecai and the people, like they're, they're literally giving everything over to the Lord. And I know we've gone over the spirit of discipline of fasting. I know we've gone through this, but I want to I want to go to the Hebrew root. I've never done this before, and I don't, I don't know why. You'd think it'd give you a whole lot more authority in what you say. The Hebrew root word of fasting, it actually means to abstain from food. Like that's actually the root. And so to me, it says when they're fasting, they're, they're not eating. Why? Because Nelson's commentary says it well, because at times fasting mean a, a couple different things, okay? Fasting can mean a couple different things. You're abstaining from, right, something, <laughs> drinking. And in Scripture, you could back this up with every uh, multiple examples of Scripture here about what people fast. This is a classic one. My kids would love this one. Bathing. I'm not going to bathe today. Okay, well, that's an interesting one. Uh, anointing with oil. Again, all of these would be in scriptures about ways people have fasted or, even interesting enough, no uh, sexual relations. 
The whole point is, is that you're going you're gonna to abstain from these things so that you could keep your eyes right on Him. Nelson says this about fasting. Fasting acknowledges human frailty before God and appeals to His mercy. But I like this. It acknowledges human frailty before God, appeals to His mercy. Now look at this. And usually fasting is associated with, okay, mourning uh, the dead, right? Uh, another context would be, uh, usually it's with intercessory, intercessory prayer. Praise the Lord. Uh, usually it's in tied with repentance, contrition for sin. And then uh, I think there's another one here. Fasting just means times when there's times of distress. I'll give you a couple examples of when you would see this in Scripture. So, you know, when there's times of distress, you really need to come before the Lord. In Leviticus 16, 31, it's a Sabbath of complete rest for you and you must practice self-denial. It is a permanent statue. Here we are talking about the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, you guys, corporately in Israel, even today, they ask for a corporate fast. It's a time of self-denial. Man, I really, really love chips and queso, just not today. In Zechariah 8, you see four fasts that commemorated, commemorated the destruction of, of Jerusalem. Uh, how many fasts? Uh, what, how, what kind of length of a time do you see here? Well, in 1 Samuel 18, there's fasts of one day. In 1 Samuel 31, there's fasts of seven days. And then you ready for this one? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> in Exodus 34, there's fasts of 40 days. One day, seven days, 40 days. There could be more. I'm not I'm just giving you examples of fasting. Now, there are some really strict fastings. Like when you say I'm going to fast for a day, that would mean you're going to from sunset the night before to the sunset the next day. Then you have the lenient fasts that say, you know what? From sunrise to sunset, like those are the best, right? <laughs> but either way, I really like the, the mentality and the thought of Fasting and coming before the Lord. And here's the cool part about what Mordecai does. You know the way he does something, the way he fights the battle right now, is he comes and he talks to the Lord. And all of the nation does, of, of, of the Jews as well. And so in verse 4, he expresses his concern just emotionally, right? But then here's what you're going to see that Wearsby says is that Mordecai explained... Um, their peril. Now remember, Kevin, where is Mordecai sitting right now in this whole process? Do you remember where he's at? At the gate of the city, right? Almost, yeah. He, at this point, he's now in the middle of the city. Everybody should see him. So in verse 4 of Esther 4, it says, Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her. They're reporting that Mordecai is mourning. She sent clothes, and we know that because right away she sends clothes to her family member, to Mordecai, so that he could take off his sackcloth, because he di but he did not accept him. So in a weird way, Esther doesn't find out about the root issue. All she says is, what's going on with my cousin? What's going on with Mordecai? Here, go take him some clothes so he doesn't look like this. I mean, that's kind of the thought behind maybe even why what she's, what she's doing. And so in verse 5, Esther summoned Hathak. Hathok is one of the king's eunuchs assigned specifically to her and dispatched Hathok, right, 
to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. So think about this. She sends clothes to her cousin. And what does he do with the clothes? He doesn't want them. Okay, wait, what do you, what do you mean he doesn't want them? Well, so then she sends Hathak back to Mordecai. Please find out. So it says she summoned him to go find out what in the world is going on. Here's what I love about Hathak. I love the, the no-name servants that people don't really understand. Like, you know, these people that have an important role. So here you have Esther. Here you have Mordecai. And Hathak is the go-between that's actually going to lead to all of this. A servant that nobody knows. I mean, think about, I, I go right away and I, I love what... Um, I love what Wearsby points out here is that what about the lad that gave out all the fish and the bread? Nobody knows that guy's name, but he delivered something that impacted everybody. How about the guy? How about the men who rescued Paul, you know, from a basket? Right. Remember this to help him down. Like there are people that play important roles to keep the letter going, to keep the message going. And yet sometimes we just don't know who they are. And so I just you might not be the Mordecai. You might not be the Esther, but you might be the Hathok that keeps things moving. And so Hathok, he does. He comes to learn more about it. And so it says in verse 6, Hathok came, went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the city's gate, of the king's gate. And so here we are, many events taking place, gatherings, public lamentings. People are, uh, they're a mess right now. And Hathok comes before Mordecai and he says, okay, what in the world is going on? Just please tell me, give me something about what I can take back to your cousin. Verse 7, Mordecai told him everything that had happened, as well as the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasurer for the slaughter of the Jews. So if, now watch this, if Mordecai tells Hathak everything, he just told him that he's Jewish. And you know what that does? That is beginning the process of exposing who Esther is. It's the beginning of the revealing about the identity that Esther really has. And so in verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the, of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering the destruction of all the Jewish people. So Hathak might show it to Esther. Like, don't just take it from my, from my word. Like, the king actually issued this. Explain it to her, please. And then instruct her to approach the king. And, did you catch that? Instruct her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead him with him personally for her people. So Mordecai is clearly guiding and giving counsel through Hathak to tell Esther. So you can only hope that Hathak gets it right. Hathak, it says in verse 9, he came and he repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. And so then here you have, in verse 10 and on, the other layers of what happens. Mordecai then, you can see the importance of Mordecai and who he is he exhorted the queen. And that goes from verses 10 through 14. Verse 10, it says, Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to tell Mordecai. So the words have been released, right? And now it goes into verse 11. Here's what, here's what I need you to tell Mordecai, please. Okay, I got it. Like, what an awesome role, right? This guy is just going back and forth. And I'd just be like, did you guys want to just sit over a cup of coffee? <laughs> Do you just want to talk? All the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know, remember, this is Esther's word now to Mordecai. Everybody knows that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned. The death penalty. If you want me to approach the king, this is what's going to happen. Only if the king extends the scepter will that person live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. So in other words, 
I like what Esther is saying here. She's saying, you know what? I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to act like I have it all together. I don't have like the greatest favor right now with the king. In fact, I haven't even interacted with him much. And so what you're telling me is if I just show up, like my life could be on the line. I need him to actually extend the golden scepter that say, yes, you can come forward. But I haven't seen him in 30 days. Probably not the greatest marriage at that point. Scripture continues on, and Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. <laughs> and then Mordecai told the man in probably really good shape, <laughs> told the messenger to reply to Esther. Are you seeing all the banter that's going back? Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. I'm going to cover this in a second, but I want to read verse 14. If you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's house will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I like what he says here. Esther has a chance to act as what Wearsby says, God's agent in delivering the Jewish, the Jewish people. The question is, is, will she? So there's three facts that I want to walk through that I really like. Uh, and I'm just going to kind of write these down and it's pretty simple, pretty straightforward, but go here. Being a palace resident, this is what Mordecai is calling out. Okay, In other words, no matter what your position is, being a palace resident will not guarantee that she, meaning Esther, will be delivered from death. Because you know what the decree is? All the Jews. You know, and it goes to me when people are in a position of prominence and importance or fame, it's almost like they think they're exempt from everything, don't they? It almost has this feel of, you know what? I, that, that decree doesn't apply to me. I know somebody. But the king can't back out. And so that's what Mordecai says. He said, just because you're in the palace doesn't mean that you're going to be okay. And in fact, your silence, he says, her silence, and I really like this one, wouldn't prevent a deliverance. Think about this. Just because she's silent doesn't prevent deliverance from coming from somebody else. Like, in other words, is God only limited to Esther? So you can say, hey, I, I'm in a palace. It might not affect me. Or, hey, by the way, you know, if I'm quiet... Uh, you know, God, God can still use somebody else. And then finally, I love this one. Uh, maybe, maybe Esther being in the palace, like just maybe Esther, God just, you're there because you're supposed to be there. I mean, think about Joseph, you guys, in Genesis 50. Genesis 50, verse 20, Kevin, if you'll go there. I mean, it's a great example of Esther 4, verse 14. I mean, to me, it's you planned evil against me. Scripture says God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. God put Joseph in a situation not only to save his brothers, but his people. Esther is in a place that God can use her. A lot of people, and I would agree, would then use this, this dialogue as saying, God's in this book. Am I right? I mean, this is what he's implying here. He says, hey, by the way, think about this. In verse 14, if you keep silent, somebody else, liberation and deliverance is going to come to the Jewish people through somebody else. Like God's still in control regardless if you obey or don't. 
And in verse 15, Kevin, if you'll go there, please. So Esther, aren't we having this great dialogue, right? Sent this reply to Mordecai. In other words, the cousin kind of, he dropped the ball, in the, the bomb and saying, you, you need to do this. And she says, go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. In parentheses, I'm getting ready to take action. Don't eat or drink for three days, day or night. So now, now that they've heard the letters going out, now Esther's saying, hey, by the way, I need corporately all of the Jews, release the words to the 15 million Jews all throughout the regions, please. I, here's what I need you to do. Everybody needs to fast three days, day or night. Don't stop. I and my female servants will also fast. So the people that are around me, we're going to fast. And after that, I'm going to go to the king. Even if it's against the law, if I perish, I perish. I love this. Esther went from, I don't know if I can go because the golden scepter hasn't been extended to me. I haven't seen him in 30 days to, oh, I'm in. Even if it means my life is on the line. So guys, let's, let's rally the troops three days. Let's pray and fast because after the three days, I'm going to go to the king and in this phrase, if I perish, I perish. And so in verse 17, Mordecai, he went and he did everything Esther had ordered him to do. Everybody, he's now, he's delivering, he's spreading the word. Hey, everybody, please fast. Esther's going to come before the king. It really comes down to a matter of life and death. I love what Wearsby says. Everything is against Esther at this point. Everything. The law. Uh, you can't interrupt the king. Uh, the government. There's this decree that actually has gone out that says, oh, by the way, everybody's supposed to die, even you. And then even her gender, the king's attitude towards women is kind of come and go. It's kind of like, how can I get something out of them? But I don't necessarily need anything from you. So all of these layers are against uh, the beautiful Queen Esther. And she says, I'm still in because if this is God's will, I will do whatever it takes, regardless the cost. In other words, you see... Uh, this all in Scripture, you guys, in the New Testament. Esther serving as a model for what we have been asked to do when we follow Christ. Kevin, can you go to Acts 20, verse 24? Acts 20, verse 24. This is a true follower of, in the New Testament of, of Yeshua. And then Paul says it, But I count my life of no value to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Paul says, my life doesn't matter. I'm supposed to continue to do what he's asked me to do. Sure sounds like a, a modern Esther, doesn't it? Sure sounds like a, a, a picture of what he's been asking all of the believers. Kevin, if you go to Luke 14, verse 33. Luke 14, verse 33. Same thing, you guys. Same picture, same mentality. Uh, Luke 14, uh, 33, it says this, In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Esther was willing to actually let go of her crown. Esther was willing to let go of her female servant. She's let, willing to let go of her being in charge of, of a kingdom because she knew what she was supposed to do for the Lord. And the same thing applies in Luke 14. In fact, if you go, Kevin, to Mark, uh, Matthew 16, verse 24. Matthew 16, verse 24. It has the same feel, the same uh, context. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anybody wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Over and over, this is what Jesus asked his disciples and this is one of the most unique situations in the Old Testament. Esther models this well. 
I'll do whatever it takes to, yes, save my people. And here's how I'd close all of this. Remember, think about this. Haman, it all started because Mordecai refused to bow down. And because he refused to bow down, Haman then had a decree written from the king that said, all of the Jews, including Mordecai, are to die. Haman didn't even know that that included Esther, Hadassah. And yet Hadassah, Esther says, you know what? I'm willing to give up my life. I'm willing to walk this out so that the people could be saved. How do you get to this point in your life is my question. How do you get to this point where you'll do whatever it takes regardless of what you have to let go? Well, in Romans 8, 31, it just says this. To me, this is the, the big picture. This is the picture that I would say we, we all need to have. In Romans 8, 31, it says, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Esther had this belief. I believe Esther understood that God is in the picture. And the same goes for us. If you believe that God's for you, you have nothing to lose. All right, guys, that's Esther 3 and 4. Hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you tomorrow.